We're in uh, Philippians chapter 3, once again. As we look over at uh, Philippians chapter 3, kind of taking our time as we uh, kind of weave our way through this section of, of Scripture. And last week we, we talked uh, quite a bit about um, the topic of circumcision, explained some things about that. I just want to read for us once again just the first three verses so we kind of uh, refresh where we're at. Uh, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for it is right for me to uh, write the same things to you. Uh, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, or the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And uh, you have on your outline there five... Uh, marks or qualities of a true Christian or a true believer and we're going to be going through just the uh, first two of those today um, they're kind of summed up in the last verse there where verse 3 it says uh, for we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit that's number uh, three um, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh and so there's kind of three things wrapped up there if you wanted a description of a Christian um, what is a Christian? You could go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and say, here's what a Christian is. Um, you can talk about that a lot, because a lot of people today uh, have a lot of different uh, definitions, you might say, for what a Christian is. Some say, well, they're a child of God. Others say, well, they're a disciple of Christ. You could say they're a follower of Christ. It's the one who loves God. And you can go on and on. But uh, I don't think you could say it any other way so succinctly as Paul does in 3.3 of Philippians and um, it's a kind of a neat definition but we before we get on to that that third verse there um, I just want to kind of review just a, a little bit you remember that uh, Paul is writing to the, the the Philippian church here and it's kind of a uh, theme that he's repeated several times um, and uh, he starts off there, finally, my brethren, and we, we talked about last week how this isn't the final uh, part of his uh, letter here because there's still 40-some verses to go, but it's kind of a transitionary thought. And so he, he wants us to say, okay, I just told you all this other stuff in verses or chapters 1 and 2. Now I, I want to just kind of get your attention once again. So he says, finally. And um, the one thing that, that I see here is when he talks about warning them, he says, for you it's safe. Uh, to write these things again, uh, you know that's that's really one of the the roles of all Christians, um, especially those who serve within the ministry, definitely. But even those who may not, um, when we see something wrong, we should be willing to warn people about it, um, not just uh, sit there with you know um, sitting on our hands doing nothing. Because sometimes we forget what's at stake. And here, Paul is really kind of drawing a line, and he's saying, you know, there's a contrast here. And if you look at verse 1 and 2 and then verse 3, there's a, there's a definite contrast. And he's really trying to get across to us who are true believers. Who is the true Christian? And he kind of contrasts that with those who are the false. Um, for the true Christian, it's defined in, in, or defined in verse 3 there, and it's compared with the false religionists, you might say, those who are caught up in religion of the day in verse 2. And he calls them dogs, evil workers, and even the false circumcision or mutilation. That characterizes those who are not Christians. Um, and we talked quite a bit about circumcision last week and the, the importance that it was to the nation of Israel and to the Jewish people. But as we begin to discuss this, it's always been a ploy of the enemy, of Satan, um, to infiltrate the true church of God with that which is false. That's just the way he works. Um, to sow the tares, the Bible says, among the wheat. It's always been the ploy of Satan to allow perverse men to rise up within the congregation, and uh, all of a sudden that congregation is going astray. It's always been the, 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 the game plan of Satan 
to allow and really even energize uh, workers to attack the flock of God and tear it to shreds with false doctrine, with false teaching. And it's really the call of the true believer to defend the body from that. And that's why it's so important as a church that we don't focus on the philosophy of Steve or the philosophy of John or Ken. Or we focus on what, God word, what, what God's Word says and what God's Word teaches. And we try to communicate that as effectively as we can. We don't want to get off on some, you know, well, here's, you know, five quick, you know, uh, things that help you with your, with this, with your marriage or with whatever. There's all principles within the Word of God. And as we teach through the Word of God, those principles are going to come out. Um, that's why we believe in expository teaching, teaching through a book. Trust me, you would not want to sit under my teaching if I taught topically. Because I could probably think of five subjects that you would hear over and over and over and over and over again. Because it's a passion in my heart. But when you're forced to teach through a book, all of a sudden you're faced with, you know, okay, you got to teach on circumcision. You know, that's not one of the top five things that I would want to teach on, okay, just to let you know in case you're wondering. And, and so, you know, you're forced to address it. Why? Because it's there in the text. And we're here to hopefully give you a clear understanding of what the Word of God is saying. But it's always been the, the, the ploy of Satan to infiltrate that which is true with that which is false. And so Paul is draw, drawing in the, the sand very kind of definingly um, a line here between the people of Satan, those who are disguised as angels of light and who want to infiltrate the true church, and those who are truly... Christ, those who are truly saved. And he starts there with a warning, and it's really a, a safeguard. It's a warning about the false religionists of the day. And uh, they wanted to rise up within the local churches and confuse the, the new believers. They wanted to destroy the gospel of Christ. And, uh, you know, Satan is in the business of counterfeiting things. He takes something that God has created, and he says, how can I pervert this? Everything from sex to music to uh, even the church. He looks at the church and says, how can I pervert this somehow? And that's his main goal. That's what he wants to do. And so he's not just going to barge in and do it. He's going to disguise himself as angels of light. And that's what his workers do. But it's always on his agenda as far as putting out the counterfeit it's always a threat. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to Mexico, Tijuana, whatever. Some of you have. I'm sure probably most of you have, maybe. But when you go to a, a city like that, you have the opportunity to shop. And you go to these shops and, you know, there's something you got to understand. If the door is closed to the shop or if they don't have a door, all right. If the door is closed, if they actually have a door and it's closed, that means, you know what, they don't really barter that much. In other words, when you go in and you look in the little display case and you see that Rolex, you know, diamond gold watch for 150 bucks, that's the price if the door is closed. If the door is open, then it's kind of been, you know, the, the tradition that, oh, you know, they're willing to work on, with you on the price. Or if they don't even have a door, they're definitely willing to work with you on the price. But it's, it's kind of interesting that you can go down to Tijuana and buy a Rolex watch for about 75 bucks. Really? Exactly. It's not real. It's what? It's counterfeit. It's counterfeit. It's something that looks real. You can probably, unless you have a trained eye, put some of those things right next to the real deal. And you'd probably think, wow, this looks just like a Rolex. It feels like a Rolex. But it's not a Rolex. The same thing with, with other things you can buy down here. I remember one time I bought a... We, used to take young people down there every year when I was a youth pastor and uh, these kids would you know they don't understand they oh man look at this watch I got you know 10 bucks it's a Seiko it's like dude this is not a Seiko but it says right on the you know I know that you know and it, it took about maybe a week for this thing to kind of come unraveled and you know uh, just fall apart on them and then they realized well you know this guy ripped me off you tell you think you know, why? Because it was a counterfeit. It wasn't a real thing. Remember, was down there one, one, and I needed some t-shirts, and so I thought, oh, 
you know, wow. You know, they had brand names on these t-shirts, you know, the little guy with the whatever cricket thing or whatever it is, I don't know, little logo. And I thought, you know, Ralph Lauren, Polo, whatever they might be, you know, I'm thinking, wow, these are good. You know, you get them home and, hey, they feel like real t-shirts, look like real t-shirts. So you wear them once and you got to put them in the washer and you pull it out and they wouldn't even fit on a little dog, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just gone, you know, it's like, what happened to this shirt? Um, and it, it's, it's so important to realize that, you know what, there are counterfeits out there, even spiritually. And I think that we need to be aware of that, that just because someone is on TV and has a big church and a, uh, a huge following, that doesn't mean anything, especially nowadays. It really doesn't. It's important that we're not fooled by what that which is counterfeit. And I think that here what Paul is saying is don't be fooled by those who call themselves Christians. Don't be fooled by that. Because you know what? You can go down the street and, and a lot of people, you ask, are you a, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. My question always, where do you fellowship at? And when they say, what do you mean? <laughs> that kind of raises a big red flag. Well, where do you go to church? You know, oh, I'm this, I'm Methodist, or I'm Catholic, or I'm Lutheran. I said, that's not what I asked you. You know, where do you, felt, where do you go to church at? Oh, well, we used to go over, you know, wherever they named some church. So what you're saying is you don't go. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, Easter and Christmas and things like that. So you begin to realize all of a sudden, well, wait a minute. They think they're a Christian. They think that somehow that, you know, they understand the truth when really they're, they're, they're lost as a duck. And they don't even realize it. And that's why it should be such a concern for us, because it was a concern for the, for the writers of the Bible. They always brought this up. Who's the true believer? And they set down a criteria. But here, what Paul is saying is, you know what? I need to warn you about some things. And it's, it's okay for me to do this, because it's, you got these people out there. I'm going to call them dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. We're going to look at that today, what that means. What do those words mean? Are those just words he uses? No, they're, they're very strong statements that the Apostle Paul used. There was a, a book written several years ago. It was actually reprinted. But in this little book, Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character, it says this in their, their purpose of writing this book. It says, it is our prayer that God may use this book in the following ways. One, to confirm the faith of such as are the true children of God but who lack assurance based on biblical principles. Secondly, to strip away the false hopes of such as are deluded and, and whose delusion has been confirmed by their erroneous teaching on the subject of assurance, which is so prevalent in our day. Three, to clarify these issues to those who stand in that awesome place of being expositors and teachers of God's holy word so that they may find fuel for the fires of their own hearts and their public ministries of the scriptures. And really that's what we want to do here. We want to kind of do those, carry out those three things. For those who are truly born again, we want to make sure that you're assured in your faith. But you know what? Hopefully it's going to explode and maybe strip away some of the, the, the uh, delusion, some of the, the counterfeit faith that may be there. And hopefully equip all of us to be able to better see which is counterfeit and which is not. Now Paul starts here and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And we talked about uh, last week a little bit about this verse. But that's really the first characteristic of a true believer is that relationship with the Lord that causes joy in our hearts. And it's a transition, like we said. And he lays down this very basic, simple principle that our rejoicing is connected to a relationship. He says, rejoice what? In the Lord. He doesn't just say, rejoice. He doesn't just say like the, the song says, be happy. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. And it's a familiar theme throughout the whole book. In chapter 1, verse 4, in chapter 2, verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, 28, 29. You find it here again in chapter 3 and also in chapter 4. Verses 4 and 10. And so he's reminding them about joy. That's why this book is called the Book of Joy. But this is a, the, the first time here he adds that little phrase, in the Lord. 
because he wants them to understand there's no other joy outside of the Lord. We talked about last week how a lot of people think they have joy when really they just have happiness, and their happiness is just a fleeting emotion. It depends on what happens around them. But this kind of joy is associated with a relationship. Think of it this way. It's kind of like the joy that a new uh, mother has over her newborn baby. You stop and you think about this baby. The baby provides nothing. It comes out of the womb and it's it's it can't do anything zero there's no stimulating events in the in the baby's life um, it provides no gifts when it comes out hey look what I brought you mom nothing like that doesn't not ready to make a contribution charitable contribution there's no particularly beneficial service of this baby at all and yet when you stop and you think about it the relationship between that mother and that baby there's an exhilaration of joy there it's that same kind of emotion only in much greater and deeper proportion is that of falling in love when you fall in love hopefully there's some joy involved if there's not we need to talk Okay, if you're saying you're in love and there's no joy in your relationship, there's a problem. But when you fall in love, you find that special someone and you fall in love, all of a sudden, wow, there's a joy with, connected to that relationship. You don't have a joy independent of that relationship concerning that person. It's the same thing with the Lord. When Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord, he's telling us, you know what, it's because of the Lord that you have the joy. You have the ability to rejoice. And it's not some emotional thing that we talk about on a human level. It's really produced by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, on a supernatural level. It's a supernatural emotion, you might say. You say, well, what does it do? How does it make us feel? What, is, what does this joy produce in our lives? Well, it produces a deep, I would say, trust and confidence in the future. Because when you have a relationship with the Lord, you begin to understand that, you know what, your life is in God's hands. It's not in your own hands. Your life is in Christ's control. We sang that hymn a couple weeks ago, It is well with my soul. No matter what goes on around us, the believer should be able to say, you know what, it is well with my soul. In spite of the circumstances. That's the true believer. That's the believer that has this supernatural joy imparted to them. That doesn't mean sometimes you get, don't get depressed, sometimes you get mixed up emotionally. I'm not talking about that. But overwhelmingly, deep down inside, you should still be able to lay your head on the pillow at night and get a good night's rest because you know that God is in control. You're not. It's a kind of joy that brings a silent sleep, a deep sleep, a, a quietness of life, because it trusts in, in our Creator, in our Lord. And it really dispels any form of fear, because we're trusting in God. There's a hymn that we sing once in a while, In my heart there rings a melody. It's that kind of joy, that kind of joy that puts that melody in your heart. No matter what kind of bumps you run over, no matter what walls you run into, there's still a, a deep-seated trust and faith in God that, you know what, God, my life is in your hands and you're going to work these things out. See, it's very different from happiness. Happiness depends on what goes on around you, good health, flourish financially, socially. But see, joy persists in weakness and pain and illness and death. It's different than being involved in a, if you're at a, a party and all the music's going and everybody's talking, you're having a good time. That's happiness. What joy is is when everybody goes home and you turn out the lights and there's no music, there's not even another soul in the room. And you still have that joy, that peace in your heart. It's because we trust in God. We rejoice in the Lord, as Paul says. A lot of people don't get that. 
A lot of people, their, their joy, their happiness is based on everything that goes on around them. F.B. Meyer wrote this, The joy of the Lord arises from leaving all of our burdens at His feet, from believing that He has forgiven the past as absolutely as the tide obliterates the children's writing in the sand, that nothing can come which He does not appoint or permit, that He is doing all things as wisely and kindly as possible, that in Him we have been lifted out of the realm of sin, sorrow, and death, and into the realm of divine light and love, that we have already commenced the eternal life, and that before us forever there is a fellowship with Him so rapturous and so exalting that the human language can only describe it as unspeakable. And so Paul says, you know what, keep on rejoicing in the Lord. That's a command. That's not an option. And it's characteristic of every true believer. And he goes on there and he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. Now you can say, well, what's he talking about? Is he talking about something he just wrote or is he talking about something he's going to write? Well, I don't think he's talking about rejoice in the Lord. I think he's talking about something that he's just about ready to pen. So for me to write these things that I'm about ready to write to you, it's not tedious for you, for you it's safe. And that's why he says there very clearly, beware. Beware. And this is where the idea of not only does a true believer have a rejoicing heart, but the true believer has some realm of discernment when it comes to spiritual matters. He says it's, it's a safeguard, and in verse 2 he begins, beware. And this is kind of where we want to <clears throat> spend the majority of our time here this morning. He uses this same kind of phraseology back in chapter 1, verse 27, to write the same things to you, it's no trouble to me, it's a safeguard. It's kind of a similar thing as what he's saying. And back in 2070, he's talking about conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's calling this church to live a godly life and behave as a church should behave. Then back in, in verse 28 of chapter 1, he goes on, he says, In no way alarmed by your opponents. See, he's bringing up the idea back in chapter 1 about, you know what, there's, there's some people out there that want to destroy you, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Verse 29, because it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, he goes on to say, and you will further experience the very same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. Where was he when he wrote this? He was in prison, right? That's what he was relating to the people. And so Paul's saying to them, hey, look, you know what? You need to stay true, walk worthy, stay together in one mind, striving together in one faith of the gospel. Don't care about the opposition that's out there. Don't let them in infiltrate your church. Don't let them influence you in a wrongful way. That little phrase, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It means to cause fear or reluctance. And he's saying, you know what, I'm not reluctant. I'm not afraid to do this. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm excited to do this. Why? In verse 2 there he says, because it's, it's for your protection. In verse, the end of verse 1, it's for your, your protection, it's for your safety. It's for a safeguard for you. That original word really means to cause to fall or to overthrow. And what he does is he puts a little article in front of it, which means, I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to trip. I don't want you to be overthrown in your faith. This is going to be a protection for you because I'm going to warn you about some things that you need to hear. See, Paul is no dumb dog, you might say, as Isaiah 56.10 says. He also is no irresponsible watchman on the wall, as we described in Ezekiel. But Paul is faithful, and he's faithful to warn these people about some things that they needed to have their attention brought to. 
In Acts chapter 20, he says, I have not ceased to warn you at Ephesus night and day with tears for the space of three years. I warned you about perverse men rising up from within, and I've warned you about grievous wolves from without. See, warning people about things is part of ministry. That's part of our call as believers. And so he says, hey, you know what? I have no trouble doing this. This is part of my calling. Now, who's he going to warn us about? Who's he talking about? He uses that word in the original there three times. Beware. And all three times it's in the imperative. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. If you take the mutilation at the end of verse 2, which is translated in the New American Standard, false circumcision, and then you compare it with verse 3, the true circumcision, we know who he's talking about. He's talking about those who basically took circumcision, the symbol of circumcision, and they held on to that so tightly that they forgot about the spiritual implications of circumcision. So they were saying, if you just do this one thing, have yourself circumcised, well then that's fine. Then you'll have, uh, you'll be pleasing to God. And we found out that that's not necessarily true. See, because the Apostle Paul comes into the Gentile world and he preaches that, you know what, salvation is by grace plus nothing. No works at all. That's how we're saved. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you must do. You're saved by grace, period. That's the message of the gospel of Christ. God's marvelous grace. In an act of faith, you simply receive the gift of grace that God has given to us. The work has all been done for us. And so Paul goes through the Gentile world and people come to the knowledge of the grace of the gospel. They get saved and churches kind of rise up and they begin. And they believe, even some of the, the Jewish people believe the gospel. And they became uh, believers in, in Jesus as the Messiah. They became believers. They believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe that he was raised from the dead. But then all of a sudden they also believe that in order to be pleasing to God, you have to have circumcision. And you have to keep some of the ceremonies of Moses. And if you do that, then God will be pleased with you. It's not just good enough to trust in Christ. You have to add these other things to it. And so no sooner does Paul leave a town after establishing a church and rise up and they say to the, 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 the uh, these false teachers rise up within that church and they say, okay, now you're saved. This is true, Gentiles, but now you have to be circumcised because you're really not truly saved unless you're circumcised. And then we're going to show that to you in the Old Testament. And then, by the way, also there's some rules that Moses let down, laid down that you have to follow as well. And, you know, we're going to show you that in the Old Testament. And so they did that. And because these were new believers, they didn't know. They were undiscerning about the, the economy of God and the new covenant that God had established. They were confused. And so they began, began to, to take part in this, to realize that, hey, you know what? It's not just by grace. It's by, oh, I've got to do something else. I've got to get circumcised or I've got to follow some rules and regulations. And it wasn't only harming those who were actually saved within the church, it was harming those who were, who were coming to the church, just maybe hearing, maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a, a relationship with Christ, but you're here. Well, it would affect you of whatever I teach. And that's what they were doing. They were saying, okay, well, you know, if you want to come to Christ, you know, it's by grace, but you also have to do these other things. And that's why they were called Judaizers, because they were Judaizing. They were, they were adding to the Christian message. Because you have to go through the foyer of Judaism. That's what they were saying. You can't be a Gentile and just come to Christ. You've got to be circumcised. And you've got to follow the, the Mosaic law and economy and subscribe to that. And this was a, a huge issue in the early church. And we know that because it was addressed in Acts chapter 15. Verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judah, Judea and began teaching the brethren. And here's what they taught. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were teaching them. And when Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them because they denied that, 
In other words, you didn't need to be circumcised to be saved. And so all of a sudden you have this debate going on. Well, the brethren determined that Paul and Moses and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. So that's where the Jerusalem council. First church council was, was held there. In verse 5 of 15 Acts, it says, A certain one of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, here's a guy who came to Christ, he stands up in the middle of the council, and here's what it says, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so everybody got together, the apostles, the elders, to look into this, and they had a lot of debate. And Peter brings the resolution in verse 7. He says, Brother, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then here's what he says. Listen to this. And God knows the heart. He knows whether faith was real. He knows whether faith was true. Bore witness to them, to the validity of their faith by giving them what? The Holy Spirit. That's what Peter says. So he concludes that if God gave them the Holy Spirit, they were what? They were saved. It didn't matter whether they were circumcised or anything else. They weren't circumcised, but they had the Holy Spirit. And so if they had the Holy Spirit, they must have been saved. In verse 9, he goes on, he says, He made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts by faith without circumcision. Verse 10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our, for for neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. In other words, are you going to bind them with the law that you can't even keep? Who do you think you are? To earn something which God freely gives, he goes on. And they resolve this at the Jerusalem Council. And in Galatians, we find it also an issue. In, in Galatians 1.9, Paul even refers to it as another gospel. And he says anybody should, who's preaching that other gospel should be accursed. See, these are not, you know, real user-friendly terms. <laughs> In Galatians 5, verse 2, he says, If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And what he's saying, if you think you're getting saved by, by circumcision, then you're really not saved. Christ is not really saving you if you think you're putting something else above the work of Christ. If you're going to re receive circumcision, then you're under obligation to keep the whole law. And you've been severed from Christ. That's, that's the thinking. And so into Philippi, these Judaizers, these people that taught that, came just like they went into Jerusalem. They'd come into Galatia, and Galatia was an area, it wasn't a city. And so they were pretty widespread, these people that taught this. And Paul says at the end of Galatians that they really were interested in making a big show in the flesh, compelling you to be circumcised so they could kind of put notches on their belts. They converted you with circumcision in their thinking. And here they were a real threat to this Philippian church. And so that's why Paul says here, beware of these false teachers. Beware of these people that, that say that. And he uses three names to describe them. First one, he says, beware of the dogs. Now, I mean, even today, if you called somebody a dog, <laughs> you know, that would be an insult, right? You dog. I mean, maybe they're using it in a positive term now. I don't know. But for the most part, I wouldn't be happy if somebody called me a dog. But back then, it was even worse. You know, you just did not call a person a dog back in that culture. There's two words in the New Testament for dogs, and they both have the same root. One means little dog, little pet dog, little furry pet dog, cute little dog. It's used in Matthew 15, 26, 27, Mark chapter 7, verse 27. It means a dog that could be a little pet. I don't know if you like dogs, but... I'm not a big fan of any pets, but that's fine. But there's another word in the New Testament. 
And this word does not mean pet dog. It's, it's used of dogs that were not pets. And I want you to understand, most of the dogs back in that day were not pets. They roamed the city like a pack of wild animals. Well, that's what they are. They were scavengers. They weren't pets. And you can look at a lot of different history books and read up on this. They roamed the streets. They were scoundrels. They were scavengers. They roamed in packs. They hunted the garbage of the city. They were often rabid just because they didn't have shots and all that. They snarled. They were wild. They prowled the, 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 the city streets without any owner, without any little dog tag, anything like that. And they'd feed on garbage. They'd feed on the filth that was left behind. They'd fight one another. They would attack people. In some cases, people would even lose their lives because if the dog bit you and it was rabid, they, they would die because of the disease. I mean, to show you the character here of, of these kinds of dogs, do you remember the parable where the rich man and Lazarus, and you, you remember that story, the part of the, the, the torture of Lazarus when he was sick and in his poverty he was laying in the streets. And it says in the Bible, that the dogs were what? Licking his sores. Now this isn't your nice little household pet. This is the filthy, vile scoundrel that most dogs were. And they were licking the sores of this poor beggar. In, in the book of Revelation, John wants to identify those who are outside, not allowed in the gate of the holy city, and he calls them dogs in 22.15. So they're not some warm, fuzzy thing that we consider pets today. These dogs were very different. They were the lowest of the low. And because they were so disgusting, the Jews had to use the term uh, dog as a title for Gentiles. That was in the culture. They called Gentiles dogs. In fact, the Talmud says the nation of the world are like dogs. And so the Gentiles were dogs, Gentile dogs, unclean, filthy scoundrels. And so the Jews would see the Gentiles as dogs. Now you can understand here when Paul says, beware of dogs, and he's talking about who? The Judaizers trying to protect, you know, the Philippian church from them. That's a pretty strong statement for him to make. And what's startling here is that Paul, a Jew, calls Jews dogs. That's really turning the table on them. That's a serious statement. You wonder why Paul wasn't so popular. Well, that, that could be one of the reasons why right there. In effect, what he was saying was, beware of those who self-righteously call other dogs, but they're the dogs. They're the real dogs. They accuse others of shamelessly attacking the truth, but you know what? They are shamelessly attacking the truth. He says, stay away from them. See, anybody who comes along today, even in our, t our, in our day and time today, and says to you that, you know what? Yeah, it's, it's the grace of Christ plus this plus baptism, plus, you know, um, saying th these prayers, going to this ceremony. you got to go through some kind of ritual. Paul calls them dogs. And you know what? It's all around us. It's all around us. People are subscribing to all sorts of things to think that, oh, this is how you get the grace of God. You have to do this. You have to do that. You, you know, you, you, the list is endless. But we're saved by grace, beloved. We don't have to add anything to that. It's a gift of God. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. And anything that comes down the road that says, oh, no, you've got to do this, says they're basically a filthy, unclean beast. Secondly, quickly, he says, you know what? They're also evil workers. They're evil workers. In other words, these are people who put pride themselves in doing good works. 
They look at their life and they say, you know what, look at all the stuff I do. And they're good things that they're doing. It's not a basis of what they're doing. That's not the point. But he turns the table on them. And he's talking about those who are involved in all sorts of external religious works and activities and they see themselves as workers of good that they please God somehow by doing these you know favors for God they're earning their salvation somehow they go to ceremonies and rituals whatever they do and they deserve God's pleasure upon them because they lit their little candle or they bowed their knee or they genuflected to the yeast or whatever it is. They've gone through the water and they've gone through the ritual and they've done all these things down through their beads. And they've done all that and somehow they think that, you know what, they're earning favor with God. Well, what Paul says here is, you know what, they're evil workers. They're evil workers. Why do you think he says that? Because, beloved, basically the principle that you can earn anything from God is wickedness. Because what does that feed? That feeds your flesh. That feeds your pride. Unsaved people, people who don't know Christ, even religious people, can't really do what is good before God's eyes. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, wicked people can do bad, bad. You say, what's bad, bad? He goes on, he says, they do bad things for bad reasons. That's a wicked person. Well, what's a bad thing? Any kind of sin. They can do wicked things, and they do them for bad reasons, bad motives. They're out to hurt people. They're motivated by their wickedness, their selfish, self-centered values. And he goes on and he says, unregenerated people, people who are not saved, can also do bad good. Not just bad bad, but they can actually do bad good. What's that? Well, it's good in the sense that they can help the poor. They can relieve widows. They can visit prisoners. They can adopt orphans. They can do good. But it's bad because it's motivated by pride rather than the glory of God. The best in an unregenerate can do is bad good. They can do bad bad or bad good, but only the redeemed can do good good, which means a good deed motivated to glory, glorify God. See, in all the religious things that they were doing, they were doing it somehow to attain favor from God. And if you think for a second that, you know what, coming here to church on a Sunday morning, somehow you're earning your salvation, Somehow you're adding somehow to the work of Christ. That's not true. That's not true at all. Then you properly, you don't understand your salvation properly in, as it relates to God's word. Because God saves us completely, wholly, by his grace. Am I saying we shouldn't have good works in our lives? No, they're the fruit of a believer. We're going to be talking about that. But see, evil workers, those who try to earn God's favor by doing good things, their motivation's all wrong. It's kind of like the guy that goes to work, and when the boss is around, boy, what's he doing? Well, he's working hard. Boy, he's industrious. Look at him, you know. As soon as the boss walks out of the door, what happens to him? He flops down on the couch. You know, we've all dealt with people like that. There's no work ethic. What are they doing it for? They're doing it to be seen. And the Bible says clearly that that's not the motivation of a servant of Christ. If you're just doing what you're doing to be seen, then don't do it. By men, I should say. <laughs> if you're doing it because you want to give glory to God and you want God to see your heart of service, then great. But we don't do things just so people can look at us and say, oh, look at that person. You know, they go out and feed the poor every week. Boy, they're, they're, that's such, such a neat thing. And the whole time, the only motivation that they're doing that is, is so people can see them. So he says, you know what, they're, they're evil workers. And then he finally calls them the last thing. He's probably at his wit's end at this point, and he says, beware of the mutilation. 
Talk about offensive. I mean, he starts with dogs, and he goes to evil workers, and now he's talking about mutilation. See, they prided themselves in circumcision. That was the whole point here. These were people that said, oh, you have to be circumcised. And what Paul says when he says this here in this, in this word is basically, you're the mutilation. You're not the circumcision. You people don't represent the true circumcision. You're the mutilation. You're the castration. That's what you are. That's really, to the extent, is what he's saying. He's saying, you think you're circumcised? You know what? You, you left that whole principle when you held on to that as a mark. There's nothing spiritual about that. It was basically physical mutilation. That's what he tells them. In Galatians 5.12, he says, you say you're circumcised? Paul says, I would say that you were castrated. You see, we can't just say to these people who add works to your salvation, well, you know what? They're nice people. They're good people. They're lovely people. And they're religious. And I know they get a little mixed up. Paul says, you know what? They're dogs. Not in a derogatory I mean, he just means you better be careful, beware. They're evil workers. They're vicious. They're not workers of good. They're, at best, they're doing bad good. They're motivated, motivated by their own pride. There's no spiritual value to what they're saying. You remember up on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, they thought basically that, you know, these Judaizers thought that somehow they were going to earn God's favor by circumcision. And, and really there's no, no difference here what Paul is saying is that, you know what, the gnashing of the prophets of Baal up on, on Mount Carmel, when they, you remember what they did? They cut themselves. It says they gnashed and they mutilated themselves trying to please their deity. It's absolute, absolutely useless. That's what Paul is saying. What you're doing is absolutely useless. And you know what? Anything that it's an external thing that doesn't reflect a transformed heart is useless. You're not going to earn any bit of favor from God by doing something until you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then you can accept those good works. Before that, the Bible says they're like filthy rags. Romans 2.28, in closing, Paul says, For circumcision is of the heart. In a couple weeks, when we look at the characteristics here, the remaining, the three remaining, what characterizes a true believer, they're all internal. There's nothing external. He doesn't say, oh, you, you, you can tell a, a, a true believer by, you know, they wear a cross around their neck, or they go to church, or they do this, or they do that. No. They're all internal. We worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. Who gets all the glory for our salvation? Christ. Our worship isn't just external. It's in the Spirit. He gets all the glory. And how much confidence do we put in the flesh? At the end of verse 3, he says they don't put any confidence in the flesh at all. Because they realize that they can't perform. You know, you cannot do a dance before God to get a hug. It doesn't work that way. But we'll look at those in a couple weeks. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that we would have that heart of rejoicing that true believers do. Lord, in spite of our circumstances, Father, that we would have a joy, deep-seated joy in our lives. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't understand that, they just don't have that, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, you're the God who answers our prayers, especially in times of need. 
And Father, there's no greater need in the, in the life of a person when they realize there's, there's no joy in their life. There's no joy because there's no Savior. There's no proper understanding of who God is. God wants to change that. He wants to save you even this morning. You just cry out to Him and you ask Him to be gracious to you. Tell Him you want to turn away from your sin. You want to turn to God and give your life to Him. You want to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, for your salvation. He'll do that work. And Lord, we thank You that that work is by grace. It's not by performance. That we can rejoice in You. And Lord, also thank You that we, You've given us as believers discerning hearts. Father, we pray that this morning that we would take that seriously. Lord, that we wouldn't just look the other way when we run into somebody who is from a false religion. But Lord, that we would share the truth with them, albeit in love and graciously, but that we would see the condition of their heart as lost and not fall into the trap that somehow maybe in the end God will weigh out their good works and say, well, I'll let that person in even though they don't have a proper understanding of who Christ is or the gospel. It's not going to happen that way. And so, Father, I pray as Christians we'd be diligent to present the gospel to those around us and continue to pray that you would do that work in their heart to draw them to yourself. And Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We just pray you bless us and, and dismiss us as we uh, sing a song. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.